Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled A Love of God and of All Men, was given on March 29th of 1981 by Marion D. Hanks, then a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Perhaps I need to update that uh, list by mentioning that for the last nine months or so, Sister Hanks and I have been living in Hong Kong, where our present assignment is in Southeast Asia. And I mention that because it will form a base for some of what I wish to say this evening. A week ago, Tonight, I, what's going on? (laughs) It isn't that I demand undivided attention, I'm just as curious as the next guy. A week ago this evening, I was in Osaka in rather pleasant weather, which was a relief because the weekend before we were in Sapporo with snow above our haircuts and falling all the time. And in between, I was in Hong Kong, where we now live, where the moisture content of the air that day was 95. This is March. Summer's coming. Someone asked me, how is it in Hong Kong and Southeast Asia? I, I said, well, uh, in the summertime, it is a bit monotonous until the typhoons come, but it is pleasant to be back here because while it's very, very hot in the summer, it's not so hot the rest of the year. Not so hot. <laughs> that, that, uh, that really comes from an old joke by by Yogi Berra, who was in another generation, Mr. Malaprop, and who was meeting, he then being the all-star catcher for the Yankees, Colonel Yaki, who owned the Yankees at a summer party. He was the player representative at the door when the colonel came. He said, good evening, Colonel Yaki. It's just wonderful to have you here. Uh, You really look cool. And Mrs. Yockey, you don't look so hot either. Um, 
Well, I, <laughs> I have to tell you that you really do look good to me and uh, that it's a very great pleasure to be here and in this great state and at conference at, or as conference approaches in some of the exciting spirit of this great part of the world. But with some good humor permitted, I want to announce how deeply we are committed to and how very greatly we love the people of Southeast Asia with whom we are honored to work and the nations thereof, which certainly comprise one of the most exciting and significant developing groups of nations on earth, and where much of great importance to the kingdom of God is occurring. When I was invited to come here, and indeed over the years, I began to reflect on the many suggestions for topics that come by mail and otherwise from those who are interested in having certain things said here. I have been invited to discuss doctrines, respond to speeches, announce uh, with ultimate finality uh, the resolvement of certain major issues, to talk about one doctrine or another. And as I thought about that, I thought of one of the happy recollections of my readings in past times from Montaigne, who in 1576 ordered struck a medallion which has become famous. I checked with uh, Brother Brown on the pronunciation of my French on one side of the medallion, Montaigne, who was, I suppose, the father of the essay, he invented the form, in fact, had inscribed que je. What do I know? And on the other side, je m'abstiens. I, uh, I exercise restraint, he said. I began to think about some things that I've been asked to talk about and won't tonight that I do have opinions about and some convictions about and will say just this much in many sermon about two of those topics and say only a headline or two. Revelation is a continuing, in fact, the continuing fundamental principle of the kingdom, I suppose, with all its meaning and ramifications, that great principle forms the foundation of the structure of the restored church, the restored gospel, the restored priesthood, and the ongoing and future rolling forth of the kingdom. What I know about Revelation, I've learned from the scriptures, and those scriptures are, I believe, rather plain. I love section 28, for instance, which teaches me three things about Revelation in the church. One, that there is a prophet, the prophet, seer, and revelator who holds the keys, 
who alone speaks for the Lord to the whole church in the sense of revealing the current will of God, um, in any sense altering or declaring with finality issues of doctrine. That's, as I read the record, the role of the prophet. In that great revelation recorded in section 28, Oliver Cowdery, whose relationship with and position alongside the prophet in many of the marvelous moments of our beginnings in the modern time, is taught by the Lord what all of us are to learn, that all the rest teach that which has been revealed by God through his prophets and teach it as the revealed word of God. But that first principle relates to everyone. The prophet, seer, and revelator is he to whom the Lord reveals his will for the whole church in the special sense I've referred. Then point two, there are those who declare that word, and indeed Oliver was told to declare the revealed word. He was to write by wisdom and not commandment so that his personal writings were to be his personal wisdom. But the Lord, referring to what Oliver had written under the inspiration of revelation to the prophet, was, was told to refer to those writings and teach them as the will of the Lord. What had been revealed to the prophet, which he'd had the honor of being scribed for, he was to teach from. His own writings were to be his own wisdom. So there is a prophet who speaks for the Lord to the church. There are those called to declare what has been revealed. And then Oliver was taught that as he went on a mission to the Lamanites, he had the blessing of the revelation of God's will to him in his calling as a missionary to the Lamanites. And that's the third great principle, that each of us in our callings and in our individual lives is entitled to and may receive the revelation of the will of God. Now, there is much more in section 43 in the first seven verses, which reiterate the first of those principles and other additional matter relating to revelation. In section 50, there is magnificent instruction about how we know when one who is teaching is teaching by the Spirit of the Lord. We must have that same Spirit to really know. Then there is mutual edification and enlightenment. And in section 68, perhaps best known or very well known, the declaration to a number of the brethren who were going out as missionaries relating to what they said under the influence of the Spirit. So I simply wish to declare that I believe that God has revealed that which is basic in the establishment of the kingdom, that he now reveals, as his prophets have declared, much of importance, and that he will yet reveal. When he does, to the church, it'll be through his prophet, seer, and revelator. That's my understanding of the doctrine, and I could speak lengthily and with many quotations, but that's what the scriptures teach me, and that's as I understand it. 
A letter came just the other day all the way to Hong Kong from a wonderful young man who'd made a mistake and not maybe the most drastic of mistakes, but a mistake of consequence of which he had sincerely and sorely and lengthily repented. But having read material from various books and interpretations, he was awaiting some kind of a heavenly outpouring of assurance that he was forgiven. And though his life was in order, is in order, and he has everything uh, to be grateful for and to work with and so much to contribute, he is languishing, his energies mitigated because he doesn't know that the Lord has forgiven him. To him, I declare again what I learn in the scriptures, that though a sin be as scarlet, it should be white as snow. If we be willing and obedient, and further that God forgives the penitent sinner, and that he will not alone forgive, but forget and never mention those forgivable sins of which we have sincerely repented. And that's what I know about repentance. We are not to pine away our life in endless regret. We are to consecrate our lives in gratitude to a God who loved us so much that in contemplation of our need, he sent his only begotten son to live and die for us. And in gratitude to that son who loved us so much that he paid the price of Calvary, the price of Gethsemane. Um, there is no real strength in an understanding that keeps us from making our contribution because we've made a mistake sometime, if we have truly and honestly repented. Nothing is more clear to me in the records than that. Then there is a third theme, and it's the one that leads me in what I want to talk about a few minutes. Someone has written again, as over the years they have, and each of these subjects ought to take maybe a year or a half year study, yet I treat them most briefly, about the so-called exclusionary clauses. Is it really necessary that we believe and practice these exclusionary clauses, which must have reference to the, to the ordinances of the gospel. Except ye be baptized, ye cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And the other ordinances which relate to the unfolding of our eternal opportunities, to our having a fullness of what God has in store for us. Now, Again, it seems to me that nothing is more clear than that the revelations identify and instruct us in the meaning of these so-called exclusionary clauses. Are they really necessary? Isn't it enough if we are wholesome, genial, Christian in the broad sense of being selfless and generous and all the rest? I read from section 52, a revelation given to the elders of the church in Kirtland, the language of which is instructive and clear. Wherefore he that prayeth, whose spirit is contrite, 
great qualities. The same is accepted of me if he obey mine ordinances. He that speaketh whose spirit is contrite, whose language is meek, and edifieth the same is of God if he obey mine ordinances. So, in many ways and in many places in the Holy Records, the emphasis and clarification are given. In one of, to me, the most warm and challenging of Book of Mormon passages, the Lord says about the same thing in another time and place. The last chapter of the Book of Second Nephi has the testimony of that great prophet as he finishes his work. He has learned compassion and consideration and kindness and all the other qualities generally thought of as Christian. But note the summation of his own conviction. I have charity for my people and great faith in Christ that I shall meet many souls spotless at his judgment seat. I have charity for the Jew. I say Jew because I mean them from whence I came. I also have charity for the Gentiles. Now, charity is interpreted in the record by the Lord as the pure love of Christ. Here is the declaration of Nephi that he has that feeling for his own people, for the Jew and for the Gentiles. But behold, for none of these can I hope except they shall be reconciled unto Christ and enter into the narrow gate and walk in the straight path which leads to life and continue in the path until the end of the day of probation. As we thumb back through our book, we discover what is meant by the gate and the straight path and reconciliation with Christ. Yea, ye have entered in by the gate, for the gate by which you should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. In 2 Nephi 10 and 2 Nephi 9, that's further explained. What does it mean to be reconciled to Christ? And the answer is to obey the ordinances. Then there is more. Now, it's the more to which I'd like to refer. Yes, I believe in and declare my conviction and knowledge of the importance of the so-called exclusionary clause. I do not so regard it for them. These ordinances are announced as essential, indispensable, and we believe that, and we practice that, and we announce that to the world. That's the missionary theme. But is that all? And again, the answers are very clear in Scripture. I would suspect that all or most of you would be interested in turning to the 31st chapter of the second book of Nephi, and reading what must follow entrance to the gate. Now, this great chapter has taught the reasons for, the explanation for the baptism of the Lord himself. Second Nephi 31, verses 5 to 10 or 11, and so forth. 
the announcement of the meaning of Christ's statement that this he did to fulfill all righteousness. This one may read at leisure as the declaration of the Lord explaining his own baptism. Then the gate is identified and the straight and narrow path and these words are added. Now, my beloved brethren, after ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for you have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Wherefore, you must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men, Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal love. How do we express this steadfastness, the brightness of hope, the love of God and all men? Again, the Lord has answered clearly and repeatedly in the record. One well-known, and I suspect as frequently used as any, is in section or in chapter 34 of the book of Alma, where after the prayer and faith are discussed in detail, the prophet declares, Now behold, my beloved brethren, I say unto you, do not suppose that this is all. For after you have done all these things, if you turn away the needy and the naked, and visit not the sick and afflicted, and impart of your substance, if you have, to those who stand in need. I say unto you, if you do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain, and availeth you nothing, and ye are as hypocrites who do deny the faith. Now, if we were to spend the requisite time we would turn again and again to passages in all the standard works that teach us that one requisite of forgiveness, one essential in salvation, is this continuing service to, sacrificial service to God's other children in the name of Christ. His to me, most marvelous personal message beyond the declaration of his own sonship and his own purpose in life, declared through the record, Behold, I came into the world to do the will of my Father because my Father sent me, and my Father sent me that I might be lifted up by men on the cross. In order that all men through me, might be lifted up by the Father to stand before him to be judged of their works and so forth. In addition to that purpose, there is the magnificent parable and story of the king, and those on the right hand and those on the left. We have heard it so often. Identify those who are to be served. And in these verses, there is nothing of the ordinance mentioned. The whole story bases on the ordinances, but he speaks of the hungry, 
the thirsty, the naked, the homeless, the stranger, they who are ill and imprisoned. And everyone in the room, I suspect, knows the conclusion of that marvelous story. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. That isn't the end, however, of the story in Matthew 25. That story talks about those on the left hand who shall be banished from his presence and the same categories of need and the needy are listed. The hungry, the naked, the thirsty, the homeless, those who are ill or in prison. And the conclusion is, inasmuch as ye have done it not, not done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have not done it unto me. That seems so plain and so personal. Protestations of commitment and testimony which do not comprehend compassionate, considerate, selfless service to our fellow man, real service beyond eye-pleasing and lip-talk, are not testimonies that are broad enough or real enough. Now, that's a rather long course to get to something I want to tell you about that you may not know about. You may not know that in addition to having some wonderfully good ball teams, about which we have heard, having waited anxiously in Southeast Asia for news too long, you not only have some commendable and appropriately honored ball teams, you have some other teams representing you. In Panat Nikam in the province of Chomburi, not too many miles from the Gulf of Thailand and about 100 miles from Bangkok, 12 remarkable young ladies, most if not all of them graduates, I think all but one, and she comes from England, of this university, are presently charged with the total responsibility of orientation for refugees in transit to new countries. These 12 and a mature couple who are their liaison with governments living in Bangkok have done and are doing a remarkable work. You may have read a little about it in the church section a week ago. If you did not, please do. They won't be honored by any great television notoriety, but they are doing something which in the aggregate and historically may be far more important than anything even the good ball teams of this university are doing or will do. These 12 are meeting refugees at that critical moment when they are in transit from some of the months, many years, waiting to get home again. A home. Not their home. That's gone. Now, there are a few things about refugees one ought to know. Not the numbers. I have them, and they are staggering. More than half a million to this country in recent times. Hundreds of thousands 
along the borders still, in camps, many uh, hopeless, many with some hope. The refugees are not people of weakness. Sometimes we get the notion they're different from us. They are different, all right, in that they've lost everything or substantially everything we hold dear. But they are not different in their aspirations and their intelligence and their connection with families and their emotions and their desires. They can never go home again. The home isn't there. The street isn't there. The people aren't there. Their loved ones aren't there and very frequently not with them. But we've thought about them as, uh, well, maybe that's, gee, that's tough. Uh, if we think at all, we reflect a kind of a, of a sentiment of weakness. Is that how our own history of refugees translates? The refugee story ordinarily is a story of strength, of courage, of character. Very frequently of a willingness to stand up for what one believes and to lay the life on the line for it. Well, our great young ladies are in that camp teaching many hours every day, orientation and acculturization, some crash English. But fundamentally, they are teaching people how to live, how to stay alive with a certain amount of grace in the new country of which they know nothing. One of the, the tender moments of my life, and I will not forget it while God grants me memory of anything, was to watch a beautiful girl who may be here tonight. Are you, Sister Killian, by any chance? Sister Gertis? I watched the young lady who lives in this valley and went to this school take a little brown baby hold it tenderly, kiss that baby with the mother sitting there and many others around, and then gently, lovingly lay the child down on a little carpet on which a diaper had been placed. Sharon finished the putting on of the diaper, the first time the baby had ever worn a diaper in its life. And the mother and the others watched with great eagerness, they were watching what was happening, but they were as if in the presence of the Lord himself. And I felt that way. A little later, from the large room where it was done uh, to the compounds where they lived, we went, and there again the process, now for a smaller group, was being repeated. You see, many of these great folks haven't had the kind of experience that would equip them for the simplest kind of understanding of life in this country. They don't know how to get on an airplane. I went in one of the big teaching sheds, they are so-called, and our beautiful girls had these people coming in with a little bundle in their arms. They passed by three tables where attendants stood. All had been instructed carefully in what to do. One attendant was the airline's counter. And they had to present a piece of paper representing a ticket. They were so excited. They were giggling. They were pale, frightened. They tentatively put forward their ticket. The person had been taught, took the ticket, tore a piece off, gave them some back. There was some baggage instruction. 
they went then uh, to immigration and uh, to the uh, good folks who opened their baggage. Uh, they passed through, and then they went onto that concrete floor and sat in rows while they saw signs that said, no smoking and buckle your seatbelt. They had never seen any of that before. They didn't know about food on a tray or stewardesses or going to the bathroom. They were taught all of that gently, lovingly, genially. They had to be taught sometimes through two interpreters because the languages are complex. Our young ladies, when they get on them, one who can speak English, teach that person English, one of the refugees, then sometimes they must translate through their language through another language. But all day long and into the night, these heroes, heroines of ours, are teaching, preparing, and they are doing it in accordance with a strict rule against proselyting in refugee camps. That's hard for them. But things are happening that indicate what kind of a fallout there will be one day when these good people who are leaving by the thousands every week fan out across the earth. We faithfully keep the commitment that we shall not proselyte in terms of our specific church uh, convictions. And yet, what happens is a thrill. Let me share one or two simple instances. Here's a letter from one of these young ladies that gives an idea of what it's all about. Good things are happening at Panat Nakam. Some of us had a very special experience yesterday that Sister Edmonds asked me to write and share with you. We were walking down a road in the holding center. In the distance, we saw a small group of people walking toward us. A little girl bolted out from the group, running toward us with outstretched arms. She stopped. She was so very cute. I bent down to take her in my arms and give her a big hug. I hailed her and we tried to talk to her while the rest of the group joined us. We talked with a mother in Cantonese and learned that these are Vietnamese who just arrived three days ago from another camp. The little girl is five years old and had never seen Westerners before. Yet, as her mother said, she so joyously welcomed us. Later, we were talking with a Catholic father who is a wonderful man working in these camps. And I'll skip part of the story in which Father Bingham was talking about some of the camps he'd been to and the problems there. I said, it's easy for us to feel so strongly about these wonderful people, these refugees. I told him about the experience we just had with a little Vietnamese girl. He stopped me. He said, that proves my point about you girls. She wouldn't have done that to volunteers from any of these other fine agencies. She could see that you're different. And this, our lovely representative, finishes. I'm so happy that I can be here sharing with these precious people. I'm glad the light of the gospel helps us to be different. Thank you for your prayers and support. I want to give you perhaps two other examples of hundreds that reflect not so much the tremendously hard work, the tremendous sacrifices being made there by our folks, but the consequences of it. Here's a short paragraph from another letter. 
Today in the Hmong orientation class, and you'll recognize that the Hmongs and the Yaos are hill tribes from Cambodia or Kampuchea. Today in the Hmong orientation class, I saw wealth and poverty, a wealth of creativity in a child making up games to play with two sets of rubber thongs, and poverty of education in a grandmother who struggled to copy the words to the children's song, Head, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes, by starting the last line at the bottom of the page and working her way up. Her eyes went up to the board and down to her page many times for each letter she formed with her pen. We have discovered that some of these wonderful women cannot count even to ten in their own or any other language. So much to do. We are thankful for this opportunity to be useful. Yet some of these folks are professionals. They have sophisticated education and experience. And our young ladies must meet time variances. Some are there for two weeks, some for many months. Some go through the teaching process a number of times. Some are only there a few hours. And early in the morning till late at night, our folks are teaching others to teach and themselves teaching great numbers of these needful people. I suppose out of all these letters, the one that may touch you as much as any, or at least did me, is the one about Christmas. They were teaching about holidays. We had a good time discussing Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day, but when we talked about the Savior, the spirit in the room changed at the mention of his name. I talked about what death really is, just a separation of the body and the spirit, and how after resurrection, they can't ever be separated again. As I talked about a perfect body, the concept of pain, hunger, suffering, all seemed to be mitigated. They have suffered so much. How much more joyous the resurrection will be to them than to us. We talked of sorrow and rejection and persecution, all real things to them. It was wonderful to teach the truth and offer hope. And then we came to Christmas. We'd spoken of Santa Claus and snow and Christmas trees, and then one of them wanted to know why the star was a symbol of Christmas. So I shared the Christmas story with them. They loved it. They don't understand words like manger or, and it came to pass, so I had to use vocabulary words they could relate to. A stable is a place where the animals live. A manger is what the animals eat out of. But wasn't it dirty? They wanted to know. Yes, but they cleaned it out and put some straw in it. A shepherd is a man who takes care of sheep. There was no room in the inns, even though the woman's going to have a baby very soon. No one would give her a place to sleep. The story came alive to me. And at the end they said, why, that sounds like a refugee story. Do you have some pictures of it? And no one knew who that baby was, did they? Because if they did, they would have gladly given up their own beds. These words have haunted me, and no one knew who they were. That's my own feeling about the refugees. If we only knew who they are, we'd do anything for them. But not many know, and so many seem not to care. So they suffer and remain here 
obscure, despised, ignored, rejected, homeless, hungry, mocked. I have to add this one. They were teaching a class of young people, and they have musical skills and dramatic skills. They are just remarkable. A young boy told them about a high school French teacher in one of the countries from which they came. During one of the late political regimes, she had been unfairly punished. She had watched vicious things and suffered vicious things and swore that she would never again utter another word to anyone as long as she lived. She had kept her vow since 1975. Even during the time she and her mother walked clear across Cambodia to Thailand. She and her mother had been unable to obtain entrance to a third country since she would not talk. No amount of coaxing or threatening would bring her out. Then she mentions one of our returned Thai missionaries who is helping. There are two of those. Benja returns to work with her each day. Now she's cut her hair and is enrolled in basic English class. She talks every day. She's going to get to go to a new country with her mother. I have hundreds of these, and perhaps we'll conclude and add just a word with this one. They were singing with some of the youngsters. This group happened to be Vietnamese. There are Khmer's and Laotians and Hmong's and uh, Yao's also, and occasionally some others, an amalgam of Indochina. We noticed that one of these Vietnamese boys was singing along with us on the chorus of I Am a Child of God. We thought he surely does learn fast. But as we went to leave, he said, I know that song. Do you know this one too? Then he hummed, love at home. He told us that he learned that these songs from a Protestant group in Saigon in 1975. To the Orientals, anyone who's Christian but not Catholic is Protestant. We then sang love at home with him. Then we asked if he knew it in Vietnamese so that the other children would be able to understand the words. He sang it with such emotion and his lip quivered we wondered if he had been part of a family when he'd learned it. It was beautiful. We asked him what the words meant, and he replied in broken English, All the world is good when there is love at my house. After talking with him a little more, he told us that the young men who taught him the songs wore funny clothes. <laughs> White shirts and ties. He was obviously one of the youngsters, then 10 or 11, taught by the missionaries in Vietnam before they were pulled out. I wanted you to know what I suspect few of you have known, that in addition to a magnificent team of about 1,500 missionaries in Southeast Asia, where miracles are happening, in some of the most colorful political and economic difficulties the world knows. 
that with all the deprivation and all the problems and all the masses of humanity, the kingdom of God grows. Sister Hanks and I just came back from two weeks in India with President Talmadge Jones and his wife, who live in Singapore and who have added to their extensive vicinage the whole land of India to go with Singapore and Indonesia now and Malaysia and elsewhere. We had such an experience. Let me tie everything I've said together by telling you what one man said. He knocked on the door of a hotel in Hyderabad, having heard we were coming. The room was getting crowded. Two others had knocked a few minutes before. They had come 600 kilometers in one of those terrible buses clear across the area in India, riding all night because they heard some church leaders were going to be there. I was talking with the two brothers when the knock came from the third. He came in the room with his son. He himself is a professor, his son a lawyer. They had found a tract. They met someone who had known the church. They had gotten a copy of the Book of Mormon. Now this man and his four sons, all professionals, are ready to join the church, anxious to join the church, pleading. We have had no one there to teach them. We are not permitted in that great land, any missionaries presently, in any form. And so because perhaps we have learned better than to baptize and just leave them, which once out of the, the great anguish of hearts, some of our predecessors did. Uh, we can't get there. We will find ways to get there. We plead with the Lord and we're using our heads and there will be ways. But for now, these people, and they came in singles or doubles or groups of three with the same message, pleading for baptism. Uh, we'll find a way. This is what this man said. He had written a document in which he acknowledged that he had needed repentance and declared that he had sorely repented, this professor of Telugu at a university. He declared his conviction about the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophet Joseph Smith and the priesthood and the kingdom and the gospel plan. His Book of Mormon was marked on every page annotated on every page with cross-references to the Bible and of late to a copy of the Book of Mormon. I opened and read one of his annotations and was trying to explain, because my heart was as tender as it can get, why we needed to have a chance to help teach them, because he had misread a scripture and had written an incorrect doctrine in his margin. His answer to that was to hand me this document in which he was pleading for baptism. He had two references to the scriptures, both of which happened to be favorites and loved places to me. But consider what he was saying. He's been waiting many months. He now says, I know I must not ask for the priesthood, but what must I do to become acceptable to the Lord and to be received by baptism? These are the two verses I read from Isaiah 30. 
Therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner any more. But thine eyes shall see thy teachers, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way. Walk ye in it when ye turn to the right hand and when ye turn to the left. The other reference he handed me was to section 108 of the Doctrine and Covenants, in which the Lord comforts his servant, Lyman Sherman, with these words. Your sins are forgiven you because you have obeyed my voice in coming up hither this morning to receive counsel of him whom I have appointed. He'd come a hundred miles. This man, Brother Sherman. Therefore, let your soul be at rest concerning your spiritual standing, and resist no more my voice. And to rise up and be more careful henceforth in observing your vows which you've made and do make, and you shall be blessed with exceeding great blessings. Wait patiently until a solemn assembly shall be called of my servants. Then you shall be remembered with the first of mine elders, and receive right by ordination with the rest of mine elders whom I have chosen. Behold, this is the promise of the Father unto you, if you continue faithful. And it shall be fulfilled unto you in that day that you shall have right to preach my gospel wheresoever I shall send you from henceforth from that time. Then a beautiful verse about strengthening the brethren. We went to a little meeting in a little schoolhouse, and we had a testimony meeting each in turn. One of the brothers stood dressed in his Indian white and bore a sweet testimony as I expect to hear on this earth. He's a young teacher with two college degrees. He said, we don't demand. What must we do to be thought worthy to receive baptism? Then his brother stood. I was a little worried about his brother because he has been a preacher and he might be thought to be a little less well-grounded in some ways. He stood, and I will quote verbatim what he said, quietly, humbly, tearfully. The child is father to the man. If we are not worthy to be members of God's kingdom, are our little children not acceptable to him? Then he sat down. I wish to say to you that you who have served afar and you who have committed in your hearts, not all go afar, and perhaps not all are committed. But among you, there ought to be a special sense of delight to know that the church institutionally, in the far reaches of this world, in camps in Thailand, others in Hong Kong and the Philippines, is, is represented, the church as an institution, by people who carry our name, the banner of the Lord, 
and who with graciousness and high skill, the Spirit of the Lord, and with a, a sense of sacrificial commitment that's still a bit rare in the world, are doing what the Lord wants done. For those who are hungry, thirsty, naked, homeless, ill, in prison. In your prayers, think of them. They're just like you. But they are imbued with a special sense of commitment because they have a special historical mission. It's the church. It's Christ they are representing. You'll be pleased to know that the funds on which they operate are all volunteer funds, donated funds. Your senior class last year gave $20,000, the largest single contribution. That's why I thought you ought to hear what's going on. God bless you to have a sense of personal responsiveness to what the Lord has for us, wants from us, permits us to give. I'd like you to know that I know with every capacity of my being that what's happening is good and sweet and pure and Christ-like, and I'm very proud and grateful to God, in the right sense proud, that I've lived long enough to see us moving in a way that will not be misunderstood. It will be understood, and of which we can be appropriately proud. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.